Welcome to the 18th of March 2022 episode of the one and only Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, hosted by me, the one and only, as far as I can tell, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. As always, my friends, it's, I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. Now, there's no place like this one where you get to hear about some of the history and culture of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. Founded on July 18, 1640, Greenwich is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years or even 400 seconds or somewhere in between, Whether you are here to stay or just passing through, we welcome you with open arms. You're a part of our history, so congratulations. Now, the Greenwich History Show is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, L.A., of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. As we observe Women's History Month, we are not just celebrating women from Greenwich's remarkable history, but also recognizing those women and women's organizations in the present day who are actively engaged in both scholarship and preservation of Greenwich, Connecticut's fascinating history. Today's guest on Talk of the Town is historian, genealogist, and anthropologist Teresa Vega. Her African-American ancestor in Greenwich, Alan Green, constructed what we know today as the Green Twachtman House in 1845. It is a recognized landmark by the Greenwich Historical Society. The house is located in an area once known as Hangroot. Vega is a descendant of the Lyon family of the town and of enslaved people who were emancipated in the 19th century. Vega holds a bachelor's degree in anthropology and Asian studies from Bowdoin College and worked as an adjunct professor in cultural anthropology while attending CUNY Graduate School and University Center's doctoral program in anthropology. Vega is also the co-administrator of Family Tree's DNA Malagasy Roots Project, along with Cece Moore of PBS's Find Your Roots and DNA Detectives. Now, my friends, as a reminder, the exhibition Life and Art, the Greenwich Paintings of John Henry Twachman, postponed due to water damage to the Greenwich Historical Society's museum and library building caused by Hurricane Ida, has been rescheduled for later this year, starting October 19, 2022, and going through January 22, 2023. Now, highlighting artworks created by the American Impressionists, artist Twachman, depicting his home in Greenwich and its surroundings, Life and Art will be accompanied by a series of public tours and programs, including guided tours of the artist's former property on Round Hill Road. You guessed right, the Green Twachman House at 30 Round Hill Road. It was built by Vega's ancestor in 1845. On March 12, 1936, quote, 
On the 48th anniversary of the blizzard of 1888, Pembroke was today changed to a miniature Mississippi River flood area as an overflowing Byron River and overloaded drains were unable to carry away the flow of water released by melting snow and heavy rain. Large property losses were sustained throughout the township. The entire Byron River Valley in the Pembroke section was inundated, forcing residents to upper floors. Unquote. This segment is sponsored by the Long Island Sound Institute. Also, as we continue to mark the 125th anniversary of the establishment of the Greenwich Police Department, I'll share news of burglaries, arrests, and crimes committed and recorded from throughout Greenwich's history. The Junior League of Greenwich, chartered in February 1959, has played a continuous role in designing and establishing a wealth of projects and services for the community. One of those projects was the research and publication of the Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book. The book depicts what the late town historian William E. Finch called, quote, the flowering of Greenwich, unquote, the changing of a farming community into a quiet, genteel town interested in community improvement and appreciation for its historical past. The period 1880-1930, perhaps the zenith, in Greenwich's Nearly then 350-year history was the age when the word Greenwich became synonymous with millionaire. On today's show, you'll hear about one of the backcountry estates, Semlo Farm, today's Stanwich Club. My friends, if you're also looking for yet another Greenwich history book, it's my pleasure to recommend Greenwich Before 2000, a chronology of the town of Greenwich, 1640-1999. It was edited by Susan Richardson. On today's show and on future episodes, you're going to be treated to excerpts of things that happened in Greenwich's history as found in this book. Now, did you know that Calf Island, also known as Calves Island, off of the Byram Shore area of town, is about 31 acres and is the largest island in Greenwich's waters? Well, it's true. In January 1916, townspeople learned that a group of wealthy residents acquired it. I'll have some information about that. And, lest we forget that this coming Sunday, Greenwich Avenue will be the scene of a much-anticipated St. Patrick's Day parade. I don't think there's been one for the past two years. I think you might know why. You might be surprised just how far back in Greenwich's history St. Patrick's Day was celebrated. I'll have some details about that. My friends, we're going to have all this news of events and much more as today's show unfolds. Please stick around. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by... An award winner of the Landscape Architecture Foundation, Greenwich-based Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, believes that landscape design has the capacity to transform perceptions and ultimately inaugurate a deeper respect for the natural environment. Since 1979, Peter F. Alexander has been tireless in his commitment to excellence in project design, management, implementation, and personal service. Building upon a cornerstone of experience and trust, he believes that each landscaped project design expands the interpretation of design, craftsmanship, and sustainability. Peter F. Alexander is the founder of the Soundshore Environmental Information Institute. His notable projects include the Olympics Training Center at Lake Placid, New York, 
the master plan of the Calf Island Conservancy in Greenwich, Connecticut, numerous residential projects, and much more. Proudly collaborative in his approach, Peter F. Alexander's creations of immersive experiential landscape spaces cultivates a sense of community and connections that are second to none. Learn more about Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect at sitedesignassociates.com. Again, that's sitedesignassociates.com. You can also call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. By all means, when you contact Peter F. Alexander, Please be sure to mention that you heard about him through the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast with Jeffrey Bingham Mead. Thank you. We also welcome Long Island Sound Institute. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. The Institute aims to use modern planning and implementing new technology to conserve Long Island Sound. Looking forward to its stewardship in the area. To learn more about LISI, go on the web to www.li. S-I-S-T-U-D-Y.info or call 475-897-5444. Again, that's 475-897-5444. And we are welcoming a new major supporter to the show. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual Ambassador Museum based in Greenwich, Connecticut. It seeks to be a tribute to ambassadors, their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is looking for records, photographs, and videos of ambassadors and their families, or people who have been associated with ambassadors in the past. Monetary donations are also welcome. Funding supports the Virtual Museum, which is receiving support from the University of Denver and the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Throughout the town of Greenwich's 20th century history, a number of ambassadors lived here, perhaps the most prominent being Ambassador Joseph Werner Reed. He grew up on historic Denbig Farm off Riversville Road in the backcountry and served as ambassador to Morocco and as chief of protocol of the United States, among other diplomatic assignments. On future shows, we're looking forward to featuring histories of those from Greenwich who served the nation in various ambassadorial roles. You can learn more at amusa.info. Again, that's amusa.info. You can call 203-347-4604. Again, that's 203-347-4604. Or you can write to Post Office Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Again, that post office box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 
7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office, at 203-485-7595. Last year marked the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department, and it was during that time, uh, meaning last year, that um, we started to feature, I guess, what you would call a uh, historical police blotter on uh, various episodes of the uh, of the show. Uh, today is no exception. Um, today's uh, uh, crime <laughs> dates from September 15, 1911. It was published in the, um, in the Greenwich News, and it was about a stolen automobile. This is something, I hope this hasn't happened to you. It has not happened to me. Uh, but, um, you know, this is... Uh, it's bad enough having your car stolen, but then getting it back, um, uh, in this particular case, uh, proved to be particularly challenging. The story goes as follows. Um, the New York police keep car nearly a month before owner gets it, and the uh, story goes as follows. The Packard automobile, which was stolen early one morning about five weeks ago from the garage of Larson Brothers on East Railroad Avenue, was brought back to town Wednesday by Mr. Larson and Sheriff Finnegan. It had been found by the police of New York City about four weeks ago on Jerome Avenue in the Bronx, minus its windshield and top. The odd thing about it is that immediately upon the car being stolen, Chief of Police Rich communicated with the New York Police Department, giving a description of the stolen car, and he received a letter in reply from the department saying that they would inform him if the car was found. Instead of doing so, however, the car was placed in an uptown garage, and after a while, word was sent to the Packard people, giving the number of the engine of the car and asking them to whom they had sold it. The New York Police Department thereby communicated with Mr. Converse. Now, I interrupt here. I'm assuming that that might be Mr. E.C. Converse. He was the proprietor and owner of uh, Conyers Farm back at this particular time. Um, Back to the story. Um, And found that he had sold it to Bell Brothers. They communicated with Bell Brothers and found that they had sold it to Larson Brothers. Then they communicated with Larson Brothers. The Greenwich police were not even notified by the New York Department. Mr. Larson went down to get the car on Tuesday, but as he was not accompanied by an official from Greenwich, the New York Department refused to let him have the car. So the following day, he took Sheriff Finnegan with him. The car is in good condition, those who stole it evidently having realized sufficient money from the top and windshield so that they were satisfied not to strip the car of anything else. You know, my friends, during the pandemic, one of the things that became very, very popular was basically home delivery of uh, all sorts of things, especially groceries, um, takeout food, and uh, and what have you. A lot of people think that this is something that's fairly new, and I have to admit, I was one of those people. Well, uh, I have a little surprise, at least I think it is anyway, and this comes from this period, March uh, of, uh, of 1914. Um, There was an ad that appeared in the Greenwich News, and the headline of this was, Make Your Home Your Shopping Center. And um, I have this posted uh, on today's uh, show post at greenwichatownforallseasons.blogspot.com. You can see it there. I'm just going to read this to you because it, it definitely caught my eye. 
To avoid make, taking tiresome shopping trips of all kinds of weather to several different stores, markets, and shops, why not do your shopping comfortably from your own home by telephone? By telephone, you can keep in close touch with all the up-to-date stores and by making your home your shopping center, quote-unquote, you can save the time and effort that personal shopping trips require. Have you a telephone in your home? Our nearest commercial office will gladly give you full information about telephone service. Just telephone, write, or call. The ad, by the way, was from the New York Telephone Company, um, and the local agent was F.G. Wellstood here in Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, and the address, I think it was 102 Greenwich Avenue uh, and, um, and all. But uh, um, it, it goes to show that, uh, that some of the things that we do today, in this case, uh, we do it mostly online, of course. Uh, but also, you can call uh, maybe your favorite restaurant and uh, order something over the phone and then either have it delivered or maybe picked up. Uh, this kind of thing was going on as early as 1914. For those of you that live in the Pemberwick area that um, includes the Byram River, uh, you are probably far more aware of uh, flooding than many people are in Greenwich. And... Um, uh, this story that I'm going to uh, share with you goes back uh, to March of 1936 um, about uh, flooding that happened in the uh, Byron River area of, um, of Pemberwick. Um, as you know or may recall that uh, last year in uh, 2021, uh, we did have some terrible flooding in the Pemberwick area. Um, and um, uh, thanks to uh, my good friend, Mr. Uh, uh, Peter A. Alexander, or Peter F. Alexander, and uh, the people at the Long Island Sound Institute, um, they asked me to bring uh, the following story to your attention. And, um, and here it is. This dates from um, uh, March of 1936, and it was about a terrible flooding uh, that happened um, in the Byron River uh, and uh, in the Pemberwick area. And interestingly enough, it happened on the 48th anniversary of the blizzard of 1888. I'll share some information about that, but that was probably still on record as the worst blizzard um, in Greenwich's um, recorded history. In fact, it hit the entire northeastern section of, um, of the United States. Um, but anyway, this was on the uh, 48th anniversary of that uh, blizzard. Uh, it, uh, according to the headline, it finds Greenwich suffering from the worst flood known in recent years. Byron River overflows its banks. Residents marooned in homes as children are forced to remain out of school. Some highways impassable. On the 40th anniversary of the blizzard of 1888, Pemberwick was today changed to a miniature Mississippi River flood area as an overflowing Byron River and overloaded drains were unable to carry away the flow of water released by melting snow and heavy rain. Large property losses were sustained throughout the township. The entire Byron River Valley in the Pemberwick section was inundated, forcing residents to upper floors, chickens and pigeons were forced to roost against their will as swirling water submerged the floors of their coops under two to three feet of water. Residents were marooned as children of the Morgan Avenue district were forced to remain out of school. Few, if any, homes had heat in as much as water rose to cellar window level in most of the residences. Milk and food delivery was almost at a standstill, 
this morning as flood height in many spots was above hip booped uh, level. Water swirling in low areas from the river past homes, garages, and chicken coops gave the appearance of being in danger of being swept away. A thick fog hanging low over the flooded area gave a sinister appearance to the water rising about the homes. Residents who came out of their homes onto porches and steps appeared helpless as they looked at their marooned dwellings. Although floods are nothing new to residents in that section, this is believed to be one of the worst in years. Portable pumps were quickly brought into play where available in an effort to remove enough water from the cellar to permit heating plants to go into operation. Those who were able to start pumping their cellars were fortunate, as many found the water above the level of their lower windows. In these cases, no attempts to pump could be more than futile, as water rushed back through the windows as fast as it could be pumped out. Pemberwick, bordering the Byron River, was hardest hit by the elements, which combined two days heavy rainfall with thawing snow and the breakup of frost following one of the coldest winters on record. Few cellars in the Morgan Avenue and Pemberwick Road section of Pemberwick on either side of the Byron River escaped the influx of waters, which threatened to lift bridges from their moorings and the lives of many flocks of chickens in a district known for its interest in poultry. Willis S. Brown of Rex Street, leading from uh, this afternoon, recalled winning a a fifty or no, you know, it's a fifty dollar cash prize during bank night last night at the Capitol Theater, Portchester. As he donned a pair of boots, his small daughter, Florence, brought from uh, from his home to a dry spot near the main highway upon his arrival from his work in White Plains for lunch. Before making the return journey, carrying Florence, who wore the boots over, Mr. Brown reported his neighbor Anthony Neary of one forty nine Pemberwick Road also won a $50 prize during the Capitol's bank night last night. Mr. Brown reported waters receding at 1 o'clock this afternoon, although to a reporter it looked as though they just start, they were just starting to rise. Freshets and the downpour of the last two days had the Byron roaring like a mountain torrent under bridges spanning the sections bordering Pembroke Road and Morgan Avenue past small bungalows characteristic of the Pemberwick settlement. Ray Tompkins, radio dealer, who lives in a stucco bungalow nearest the dead end of Morgan Avenue, within a stone's throw of Byron River, had a private pump working this afternoon in an effort to reduce three feet of water which killed his furnace fire and flooded a small bar in his basement. As a majority of similar cases um, in the district, Mr. Tompkins was able to smile and crack a joke about his misfortune, which might have been worse, he intimated. Meanwhile, his family, including small children, played in the heatless rooms over the flooded cellar. His only garage, on a comparatively high piece of land, escaped the waters, which for the time last night, he reported, had Morgan Avenue looking like a river in Venice. 
Well, the district was a mecca this afternoon for relatives and friends of the stricken property owners, as well as a horde of curious motorists. There was speculation on the owners' chances of having their holdings pumped free of the unbiden element. One bystander remarked that it remained for the health department to designate cases which merited attention by the volunteer fire companies, namely Glenville, which Chief... Let's see. Chief William Angley reported was on relief work all night and Protection Company of East Porchester. Glenville Company planned this afternoon to continue the work of pumping out sellers of private homes in the Byram River District after taking care of a dozen of the neighborhood last night and this forenoon. Protection Company refrained from offering pumping service to the present emergency. It was indicated because of the conviction of the authorities that the pumping affected apparatus adversely. The company offered pumping service in a similar emergency several years ago. It was indicated. Mr. Tompkins, who made several rounds of the Pemberwick District while the flood was at its height last night, reported few, if any, cases in which an animal or other property was lost. A Weather Bureau prophecy of colder weather brings the fear that suffering may be caused by the lack of heat as most furnaces are still unmerged. Welcome to Talk of the Town on the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, and I am your host. Today, my guest is historian, genealogist, and anthropologist Teresa Vega. Her African-American ancestor in Greenwich, Connecticut, Alan Green, constructed what we know today as the Green Twachtman House at 30 Round Hill Road in Greenwich, in the year 1845. The house is located in an area of town that was known as Hangroot. Vega is a descendant of the Lyon family of the town and of enslaved people who were emancipated in the 19th century. She holds a bachelor's degree in anthropology and Asian studies from Bowdoin College and worked as an adjunct professor in cultural anthropology while attending the City University of New York Graduate School and University Center's doctoral program in anthropology. Um, she is also the co-administrator of Family Tree DNA's Malagasy Roots Project, along with Cece Moore of PBS's Find Your Roots and DNA Detectives. Um, I have known Teresa Vega for uh, a number of years now. I consider her to be the town's foremost authority on its African-American history. The, what you're going to be hearing today is a 2019 encore of a phone conversation that I had with her when I was on radio. It's a pleasure to have her back, and she has a lot to teach us all about the town's African-American history. Without further ado, here is my conversation from 2019 with Teresa Vega. Start off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, I am born and raised in Massachusetts. Uh, it will come out. I parked the car in Harvard Yard. Um, I originally came to New York to go to CUNY grad school back in 1990, work on my doctorate in anthropology. Uh, at CUNY Grad Center, and I spent several years doing that, but alas, I, I left the program 
but I've always maintained my uh, strong research background, um, and it's facilitated in me and my genealogy research. So I've been here for about 30 years in New York City. My degree was from uh, Bowdoin College, so I went north to Brunswick, Maine. I double majored in Asian studies and in anthropology, spent a year, my junior year in Beijing. After I graduated, I won a Thomas J. Watson Fellowship to go back to China. Unfortunately, uh, my plane was due to leave uh, June 5th. Uh, the day after the Tiananmen massacre, so I had to reroute my whole well, my whole project. I had to redo again, and I ended up going to Seychelles, Mauritius, Malaysia, Singapore, and doing uh, a comparative study of overseas Chinese. Uh, and then I ended up in um, New York City. What was that? You know, everybody has like that spark that that moment that ignited your interest in uh, researching your genealogy and history. So tell us about that. Well, I was raised uh, in a very close family with grandparents and great-grandparents. I um, have always been a book reader. I've always listened to their stories that they repeated over and over again. Um, though my grandmother's roots were in Massachusetts, uh, and my granddad's roots were New Jersey and Greenwich. Uh, we we all grew up hearing the stories of our ancestors, and I used to just sit there and listening and listen and listen. I've been doing genealogy research for over two decades now, about ten years, very intensely with my cousin Andrea, who's my research partner. For the past five years, that's also branched out to doing genetic genealogy and, and DNA research as well. Tell us about the, those Greenwich roots that you just uh, mentioned, including, um, you know, the, the, the slaves that were, uh, that were in your ancestry. Well, our roots go back, we can go back directly to Greenwich, starting with my second great-grandfather, Georgie Green. He was born in Greenwich about 1846. His father was Alan Green, uh, and then it goes back to my fourth great-grandfather, Anthony Green, who was born around 1770. Likewise, our roots go back to my fourth great-grandmother, uh, Peg. Peg was enslaved by the Lyon family. She was then sold to the Nathan Merritt, Jr., and then she eventually marries uh, Anthony Green. Her first two mm -hmm. kids were by a merit, and we know that by DNA, just like we know we're related to uh, the Lyon family via DNA as well. Both of my fourth great grandparents were mulatto, also Native American uh, roots as well. You're talking about they are first ancestors we can trace who were enslaved, and then they walked that path down to emancipation and stood up for freedom. So we go, we go back a, a while. And again, you know, because our ancestors were enslaved, we don't have the records that would take us back before 1770. But they came from someplace, so our roots are longer. And if we look at the Lyon family, 
as well. You're talking uh, uh, mid 1600s. So we're also a founding family of Greenwich. In, 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 indeed, you are. Indeed. Um, you know, as a follow-up, um, uh, I, I recall, if, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, that you are related uh, to the uh, Felmente family that um, who has uh, ancestors that are buried in uh, Union Cemetery, as I recall, off of Millbank Avenue. Is yeah, that, we're, we're is the, that correct? Yep, we. We have the Felmetas and uh, a lot of other folks uh, buried in uh, Lot 23 of Union Cemetery. What's interesting is that um, we just got a DNA match uh, of a person who we're trying to get in touch with now who matched over 10 of our relatives. So what's interesting about the Felmeta family is that they're documented as being uh, Native American as well as African descent. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And they were, yeah. and Jeffrey, Jeffrey Felmetta, as you know, uh, goes back to being one of the earliest free blacks, I think, uh, as early as 1790 census. Mm -hmm. I know that you have a, um, uh, that you, uh, uh, are an author of a uh, or a blogger of a, a blog site. So tell us about uh, because this is a um, late 20th century, early 21st century phenomenon of people doing history <laughs> blogs. Um, so tell us about that. Well, my blog you can uh, find at www.radiantroots.boricua. That's B-O-R-I-C-U-A branches.com. I started blogging about. Five years ago, um, and, and my earliest blogs began in, with my ancestors in Newark, um, and they were much, the blogs were much shorter. And over time, they've become longer and longer, so you'll definitely see that. But the purpose of my blog was to document both sides of my family, um, and both sides are triracial. I descend from people who I always tell were, uh, we were an EEOC family for centuries. Both sides of my family are triracial, meaning Native American, African descent, and European descent. And we descend from, um, in terms of the European side, both the earliest Dutch, uh, Scots-Irish, of course, uh, English folks as well. So... On my blog, you will find my archives. I'm also on a, a YouTube station called Black Progen, so you'll find their page. Uh, you'll find a genetic genealogy page. I happen to head the Family Tree DNA Maladazi Roots Project with C.C. Moore, who you can always find on Finding Your Roots. One of the things we found out by doing DNA testing five years ago was that our second great-grandmother, so Georgie Green, married Laura Thompson. When they married, that was the unification of two early black abolitionist families. And Laura Thompson's maternal roots are from Madagascar. So in terms of my blog, um, I, 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 one of the things I will be doing started this year office doing is I've retired from uh, my job job, and I'll be working full-time on my uh, writing my book, and as well as trying to get a larger book deal <laughs> going yeah. on. But 
there's a lot of information there um, that you'll find. What are some of the challenges that you face as a history blogger, if I may ask? Well, one of the major issues is that I deal with writing my ancestors back into the historical record. And I have to thank you, Jeffrey, because your book, Chains Unbound, you know, put me back in the 90s trying to figure out if my 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 uh, Anthony Green was Tone Green, and you sort of challenged us, and I took up the challenge. I hope other people take up the challenge as well to research our ancestors because there's so much history out there that has yet to be told. So one of the biggest challenges I find is, is which is a challenge for doing African-American uh, genealogy and Native American genealogy uh, in general is that we have to dig deep to find our ancestral, you know, stories. They're not, uh, they weren't recording in history. So we have to look at probate wills when our ancestors were considered property. Uh, we have to go back and read newspaper articles. We have to uh, go back and read some of the early history books, hoping that there's a little mention here and there. Um, and DNA uh, has sort of added the ability to, to find out a lot of information we never knew and connect us with cousins who, who can help us tell that story. Uh, what's, what's been the response uh, that you have received you know, to your blog, to your research, and, and everything else? Well, a lot of the research I'm doing, uh, it, it, it mixers of, a lot of people are fascinating because there is this history of, I always say the hidden history of Greenwich's hay route. Um, not a lot of people know that you had a historic community. It wasn't an all-black community, but it was a historic community of people of African and Native descent in Greenwich that lasted over 100 years. Uh, that sort of becomes gentrified out. Um, a lot of times you have uh, people who were unaware that some of their ancestors um, were owners of enslaved people. So that can be a shock to a system for some people. And there's just a lot of history that hasn't been... Um, People haven't been exposed to. So I get most of the results I give are positive, but I do have uh, some reactions where people like, oh, my. And, and my response to that is history happens. No one is responsible for any act that any ancestor did. But you can't, no one was there to say that they didn't do it. You could be an upstanding individual, and yet still be an owner of slaves, because that was what the time period was. But it's not anything that people should feel like um, they're being re held responsible for. I don't approach my cousins like that or anybody like that. History happens. I'm there to add to the historic record by telling my ancestral truth. Now, you were you were featured on an Ancestry.com commercial. I was wondering if briefly you could just 
summarize what that experience was like. I remember seeing the commercial. It was great. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, well, I was put in touch with some of the producers. They were looking for uh, someone who had taken an Ancestry DNA test. I've taken every DNA test out there. Um, but someone who, who uh, were put in touch with their DNA cousins. So the larger story was I had written a blog back in 2015 on my second great-grandfather. I had taken a DNA test, and for the longest time, I knew my second great-grandfather's paternal surname, but not maternal surname. So Ancestry DNA put me in touch with a third cousin who, no lie, lives about a 15-minute drive in the Bronx from me, my cousin Maddie. I remember the first call I had. I called her, and I was so excited because I found out his his uh, maternal surname. So his name was Juan Eusebio Bonilla Salcedo. And I remember the first conversation with her. So excited. And the first thing she told me was, do you know he was assassinated? I was like, how could you do that to me, Maddie? And so within 24 hours, I had done research. I found out at the New York Public Library on 42nd Street. They had a book in Spanish. In English, the book title would be Political Assassination. Assassinato Politico. This book was written by my second great-grandfather, the son of my second great-grandfather's best friend, decades and decades after uh, his best friend passed away. I was able to uh, get a copy, um, and it basically confirmed all the oral history that Maddie's side of the family uh, uh, was told. And then a year later, I was approached to do this commercial. I ended up flying to Puerto Rico. Let me back up. My dad was an only child on his mom's side, and he did have half-siblings on his uh, father's side. But his mom immigrated uh, to New York in the, I think, that it around, right before World War II. So he was only raised as an only child. Uh, so when I flew to Puerto Rico to film the commercial, I met with another cousin that I met on Ancestry DNA, who is in the video with me the whole time. And then I was able to meet on my dad's, what would have been my dad's 80th birthday, my my cousins, my third cousins. And that was just a beautiful experience because it was the first time in my life that I was able to see where I got my dimples from. I, I was able to just see the family resemblances and was shown around. The, the, you know, DNA doesn't lie. These are my cousins. And Without a doubt, my second great-grandfather was of Taino descent. Yalco is in where we filmed the commercial, is in the southwestern part of the island. And we were able to basically walk in my ancestors' footsteps. And it was a very uh, profound experience. 
uh, to have. I want to go back to uh, something that you said you talked about, um, or you mentioned a, a place, a community in Greenwich called Hangroot, and also your Green family ancestors. But uh, the, what ties this together is that there is a house on Round Hill Road um, yes, that you are connected to, and I was wondering if yes, you would I tell am. us a little bit about that. I am a direct Green descendant. My mother was Joyce Green. The historic home, uh, listeners might know this, is the Green Twachman House. Uh, most people affiliate it more with the artist uh, John Twachman. However, my fourth great grandfather arrived on Round Hill Road uh, in the 1820s. My third great grandfather, Alan Green, who was married to Mary Johnson. Mary was from Virginia. Interesting person. We believe she she might have come up on the Underground Railroad. Alan purchased land there. Uh, he was in that area by the late 1830s. Anthony died in 1837. And in 1845, my third great-grandfather starts building the Green Twachman House. Now, there was, you know, some building leftovers there, but he did uh, uh, build the house. Um, that house stayed in the family. Uh, he died in 1878, and a year later, uh, it was sold. And then in the late 1800s, uh, the artist, fabulous artist John Walkman, bought that house. It stayed in his family many years. And of course, he's known for uh, the the paintings of Hangroot he did, the landscaping. And then, I believe in the late 60s, early 70s, this is so great. This is a, a, the best fun fact you can get. The uh, James Henson of the Sesame Street, the Muppets, bought the house. And then John Nelson has been the current owner, and he purchased the house from uh, uh, the Henson family in, uh, I believe, 1971. But our um, roots are right. We we moved from, I tell people we moved up to the east side and got a piece of the pie. Peg's roots were in Byram. Anthony's roots were with in uh, Sherwood's Bridge, Glenville area. And uh, they ended up in Round Hill Road. You addressed a meeting of the Greenwich Historical Society. Tell us about that, and, uh, and and what did you present? Well, back in, I believe it was September 2017, and I believe if you go on uh, YouTube and just do a search of the Green-Twachman House, you'll see the actual video. And so I was invited to be on a panel to discuss the Green-Twachman House. And I was on that panel with um, Susan Larkin, who's a noted art historian, as well as an expert on John Twachman, Cheryl Henson, and Heather Henson was also there, uh, children of uh, Jim Henson. And I was there with uh, John Nelson. So it was a very um, historic panel discussion because it was the first time a lot of people were hearing the early history, Alan Green, who put the green in the Green to Aquaman House, 
as well as our ancestors, as well as the larger community of Hangroot. Um, today, we associate Hangroot with the area around uh, Round Hill Road, but way back when, uh, in the early 1800s, it was a much larger uh, space. And if listeners go on to uh, YouTube and they listen to the full uh, panel discussion, there's a lot of history uh, given there. What ends up happening is towards the, in the 1860s, 1870s, two things happened that pushed my family out of that area. One was the massive migration of Europeans uh, who came over from England, Scotland, Ireland, Italy, et cetera. And they ended up taking the, the skilled labor as well as some of the unskilled labor that my ancestors took part in. Um, and then in the beginning in the late 1870s, 1880s, you have the Rockefellers moving in, buying up land. So those were two processes which led to my family leaving uh, Greenwich proper. Uh, but that being said, some of us just moved to New York City. Some of us just moved to Port Chester, to Norwalk, all throughout uh uh, Westchester County. So in many respects, we've always been in the neighborhood, so to speak. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to an encore conversation that I had in 2019 with historian, genealogist, and anthropologist Teresa Vega. She is the foremost authority on Greenwich, Connecticut's African-American history. Uh, she is a direct descendant of Alan Green, who constructed what we know today as the Green Twachman House in 1845. It is located at 30 Round Hill Road in Greenwich, in the heart of an area that was known as Hangroot. May I let you in on a secret? In my not-so-humble opinion, nothing beats the comfort and soothing qualities of a good, hot cup of coffee in a historical setting. The Coffee for Good Cafe is located in the stone 1858 Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church of Greenwich. My friends, this is not your ordinary high-end retail coffee shop. Coffee for Good is a new, unique, nonprofit partnership with the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Coffee for Good's authentically historical, legendary ambiance will make you want to sip and stay for hours. Believe me, I'm there. <laughs> Enjoy exquisite indoor and outdoor dining. The service is attentive and friendly. And did I mention, ready for this, that the parking is free? Hey, just saying. Oh, and let me throw this into this free Wi-Fi. Need a place to study, work, read, meet up with friends, or just relax? Make Coffee for Good your destination. It's certainly one of mine. 48 Maple Avenue in the 1858 Stone Solomon Mead House. Open 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Saturday, closed Sunday. Learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Again, that's coffeeforgood.org.
You know, as we continue to celebrate and observe Women's History Month uh, here in Greenwich and across the United States, there is one organization that really uh, has done so much uh, to make the uh, town of Greenwich, Connecticut, a fantastic place to both work and to live in. That would be the Junior League of Greenwich. Now, believe it or not, it was chartered way back in February 1959, and um, It has played a continuous role in designing and implementing and establishing a wealth of projects and services for this community. In terms of its history, one of those projects was the research and publication of the Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880 to 1930 book. It is available if you would like to borrow it from any of the um, uh, Greenwich Library uh, locations um, in town. You could also purchase it. Uh, I believe, both online as well as at the Greenwich Historical Society's gift shop. Um, last week, I started uh, reading selections from the um, of the book uh, because it does so much to, uh, to document that period known as the Great Estates. Um, the one that I would like to, um, uh, to share with you today is located in the backcountry, um, which is where uh, I grew up and was uh, originally from here in town. And um, this was a place somewhat familiar to me, and that would be uh, Semlo Farm. Um, it is known today as the Sandwich Club off of um, North Street. So without any further ado, uh, let me uh, share this with you. Now, the principal owners of Semlo Farm were Edwin T. Holmes and Jacob Heckma. Um, the construction date was um, in 1910. Simla Farm might be referred to as a gentleman's farm estate, since it embodied features of both. Certainly, the large house with its multitude of rooms put it in the estate class, just as much as the large herds of cows, 2,000 chickens, numerous pigs, farm and riding horses, and 320 acres qualified it as a farm. Located in the Stanwich section of Greenwich, this farm was formed in 1909-1910 when Edwin T. Holmes, who lived from 1849 to 1920, and his wife purchased several parcels of land totaling 218 acres for approximately $110 an acre. Edwin T. Holmes' father founded the Holmes Electric Protective Company, which manufactured and distributed burglar alarms. Working with Alexander Graham Bell, he invented the automatic cutoff switch for telephones. That's interesting. He was also involved in the early marketing of telephone systems in Boston and New York, as well as of various electric call systems. Edwin T. Holmes continued the successful leadership of the company. The name given to the property and inscribed on the stone and timber entrance gate at North Street was Semlo Farm. Holmes spelled backwards. A large field stone house was constructed in 1910. Shortly after the building was constructed, the stone facade was stuccoed over at the request of Marion Holmes, as she did not care for its roughness. Today, the stucco facade gives a smooth elegance to the house. A central doorway flanked by windows and a tall Palladian window grouping over the doorway accentuates the front of the house. The slate hip roof appears to embrace the central portion of the house. Shutters are used to punctuate the regularly spaced double-hung windows. A service wing joined the central facade at the right side of the building. 
The rear of the house underwent several changes made by the Holmeses as well as others made by later owners. Early photographs, 1913, showed a colonnaded porch on the rear facade. By the 1920s, the colonnade had been removed and an octagonal summer room was built on the left side of the house, balancing the service wing at the right. Along the back of the house, overlooking fields and gardens, a terrace was constructed so that the family might enjoy views of Long Island Sound to the left and the formal gardens to the right. Much of the interior of the house reflected the decor and furnishings typical of a particular country or decorative style. Extensive later remodeling changed much of the interior layout. Remaining from the original construction, however, is the oak-paneled entry hall and the double staircase which flanks two walls of the entry hall. From the entry, one passes directly into the living room, which features the original plaster-ribbed ceiling. The family dining room, with its fireplace, is to the right of the living room. A small sitting room with a fireplace adjacent to the living room remains, as does the octagonal summer room. In addition to the main house, the Holmeses built the requisite buildings. There were barns for the 70 to 80 cattle, stables for both riding and farm horses, large chicken coops for several thousand hens, a piggery, and an eight-car garage. The Holmeses also built a greenhouse to supply flowers for use in the main house. Housing for the staff included a two-story shingled superintendent's house and apartments within the outbuilding complex. All the outbuildings were constructed of wood in the shingle style popular at the turn of the century. A summer house was set on an island in one of the lakes. In order to maintain Semlo Farm, a large staff was required. In the Holmes' day, the staff included four or five gardeners for both the produce and the extensive floral gardens, which featured 15 fountains, two poultrymen, three men for the cows, and one man for the pigs. The indoor staff included two butlers, a cook, a kitchen maid, and three other domestic servants to handle the family needs. After Edwin Holmes died in 1920, his widow and his son, Edwin T. Holmes Jr., retained title to the property until 1926, when they sold it to a second owner. In 1929, the estate was purchased by Jacob Heckma, who lived from 1879 to 1949, a Dutch immigrant who had been successful in the utilities field. When he died in 1949, Heckma was a director of the Commonwealth and Southern Corporation. One of the young men whom Heckma had brought into that company was Wendell Wilkie, and for that reason, in 1940, Semla Farm became the site of several Republican meetings and much political activity. Apparently, had Wilkie defeated Roosevelt, Jacob Heckma might have been named Secretary of the Treasury. Semla Farm was unofficially named, oh, I hope I pronounce this right, Boudergy, it's B-O-E-R-D-E-R, I.J., and I'm not going to try to pronounce it, I'm sorry about that, meaning little farm in Dutch. Greatly enlarge, uh, enlarging the farm, Heckma increased the acreage, bringing the total to approximately 320, and made numerous improvements to the land and the house. He extensively remodeled the interior of the house, combining many of the small rooms into a more manageable 20-room home. 
A staff of 11 nevertheless was retained to maintain the interior of the house. Outdoors, Heckma added many plantings, hired a landscape architect to mark out tree plantings along new bridle trails, and employed a crew of 30 groundkeepers to set and maintain the paths, plantings, and gardens. The estate continued to function as a gentleman's farm, with 60 cows supplying milk to Round Hill Dairy, and approximately 2,000 chickens whose eggs were sold locally. The Heckmas also kept six riding horses for family use. Although the number of estates foundered during the Great Depression, Jacob Heckma set up an endowment of $1 million in government securities for his home. Thanks to the fund's income, he was able to guarantee employment for his staff of 60 throughout the Depression and in the years following it. The Heckma family continued to occupy the house after Jacob Heckma's death and rented the fields to commercial farmers, thus ensuring that the pastures remained grazed and in good condition. In the 1960s, the family sold the estate to a local corporation composed of Greenwich residents who transformed the grounds into a fine golf course. Semlo Farm continues to be appreciated today as the Stanwich Club. Well, ladies and gentlemen, mark your calendars. Why? Well, the 46th annual St. Patrick's Day Parade will return to Greenwich on March 20th, 2022, kicking off at 2 o'clock p.m. Presented by the Greenwich Hibernian Society, former Greenwich Selectman John Toner will serve as Grand Marshal. Toner will be honored during the Hibernian Association St. Patrick's Dinner Dance on the following day, March 5th. Publicity Chairman James Doherty expressed excitement to see the parade return after two long years and the COVID-19 pandemic. It's been frustrating going through all the planning and getting everything lined up and all set to go and having to cancel it both years, quote-unquote, Doherty said. This year, it looks like we're on, no, we're on no matter what, and we're really excited to make it happen, unquote. We hope it's business as usual. We've reached out to all groups and bands who have marched in the past. So far, it looks like we're getting a good response. Two years off gave us time to research and look into new bands, Zoherty said. Now, he praised Toner and called him a worthy Grand Marshal. Quote, I've known John for quite a while and served on some nonprofit organizations with him, unquote, Doherty said. And then he continued, he served the town as selectman, and I've never heard anyone say anything but great things about John. He's very active in the community and community-oriented and always looking to help people, unquote. Toner was born in Greenwich, the son of Barclay and Rose Toner, both immigrants from Ireland. After graduating from Manhattanville College, Toner spent two years in Ghana with the Peace Corps teaching English and literature. After the Peace Corps work, Toner began a 27-year career in finance with Chase Manhattan Bank, where he eventually became vice president. After retirement, Toner served in the nonprofit sector and in Greenwich Town Government. In 1998, Toner joined the Greenwich Representative Town Meeting in District 2, where he remained until he was named as a selectman in 2015, following the sudden death of selectman Dave Tice. 
Toner was re-elected and retired in 2019. Over the years, Toner has volunteered with Greenwich Hospital, Coloride, and the Transportation Association of Greenwich, among many other organizations. The announcement of the parade's return comes as COVID-19 cases continue to decline following a surge around the holiday season and into the new year. My friends, you can learn more by going on the web to greenwichhibernians.org. That's spelled G-R-E-E-N-W-I-C-H. H-I-B-E-R-N-I-M-A-N-S, sorry, dot org. St. Patrick is Ireland's patron saint, said to have been born about the year 389 A.D. March 17 does not mark the anniversary of his birth. Rather, it marks the date of his death in year 461 A.D. Now, to many people around the world, St. Patrick's Day is a day worth celebrating. It is a day devoted to paying tribute to the Irish people and their patron saint, in as merry a manner as possible. I decided to go back um, and do a little bit of research to find out uh, basically when uh, or the earliest time that I could find that um, uh, St. Patrick's Day was uh, celebrated here in the town of Greenwich. And at least uh, my current research would point to the year 1907. Um, This is from the Greenwich News, um, and it goes as follows. It was about a dance that was held uh, in Greenwich. About 200 people, according to the story, were at St. Patrick's Day's dance at the Greenwich Hotel last Monday night, everybody having a particularly delightful time. The dance hall, office, and dining rooms and halls were all appropriately decorated in green and white, set off by the red, white, and blue. The electric light fixtures were especially pretty, being trimmed in green and white. The dancers gathered early, one large party taking supper in a small dining room. A piano and violin furnished the music, which was delightful for dancing. The dance did not break up until the early hours of the morning, and that uh, was published in the Greenwich News on March 22nd uh, in 1907. Now, there are many books out there on Greenwich, Connecticut's history, uh, but there's one, uh, if you're looking for yet uh, another Greenwich history book, perhaps one that I haven't uh, mentioned yet, um, it's my pleasure to recommend Greenwich Before 2000, a chronology of the town of Greenwich, 1640 to 1999, edited by Susan Richardson of the Greenwich Historical Society. Now, uh, Greenwich Before 2000 uh, was an updated and revised edition of an earlier book known as Before and After 1776, The Comprehensive Chronology of the Town of Greenwich, and that was published in uh, 1975. Now, Before and After 1776 traced the history of Greenwich from its founding by the first European settlers in 1640, (coughs) excuse me, through the Bicentennial Celebrations of 1976. The first edition, uh, according to the foreword in the book, uh, sold out within eight weeks and was reprinted with an additional of two uh, additional years in the fall of 1978. The, uh, the new revised edition carries the story forward um, another two decades through December 1999. Now, this was adopted as a project by the Greenwich Historical Society's Board of uh, Trustees and funded through the support of and in honor of Russell S. Reynolds Jr. by the Greenwich Historical Society. I should mention that Mr. Reynolds is also a um, descendant of the founders of Greenwich. He is a very, very well-known, uh, successful business 
a professional, businessman and, and owner, and also philanthropist. And so we once again thank uh, Mr. Reynolds and his, um, his family for their generosity. Um, I'm going to be sharing excerpts from uh, this uh, book from time to time in future um, episodes of the, um, of the show. And so let me just pick something out here randomly. This is from the uh, early 19th century uh, from um, 1824. We'll start with uh, that. Now, on the 18th of March, a special town meeting decides that the penalty for non-residents taking shellfish shall be increased to $17. I have to admit, my friends, that was a lot of money back in 1824. Um, no person is to take oysters between April 20th and September 20th. The selectmen are not to lease out the storehouse and dock at the upper landing unless they can get more than $10 a year. Now, on August 20th, again of um, 1824, General Lafayette, uh, well-known from the American Revolution, is met by a troop of Connecticut cavalry at the Byram Bridge, and a salute is fired as he is welcomed by a committee of Greenwich citizens. As a gesture of respect to the memory of General Putnam, of course that would be General Israel Putnam, he leaves his carriage to walk down Putts Hill under an arch surmounted by a torn Revolutionary War flag, carried at the Battle of White Plains. That would have happened, incidentally, right around the area of um, the intersection of uh, today's East Putnam Avenue and Old Church Road, uh, probably right in front of where Temple Shalom, um, of course, is uh, today. The town of Greenwich has a number of islands off of our coast on Long Island Sound. The largest of those is Calf Island, also known as Calves Island. Uh, it goes back very, very far back into our into our history. Um, and um, uh, I wanted to share one of those uh, historical stories. This is from uh, early, well, January 1916, and it was published in the uh, local press. Um, and it was about uh, a group of wealthy men who purchased uh, Cav or Ca Calf Island or Cav's Island, um, and I thought that I would share this with you. Um, the island, incidentally, is uh, located just off of um, of Byram Shore, and uh, and uh, you can see it very very clearly there. Um, and in fact, when I lived over at uh, Byram Shore, it used to be literally I could see it right outside my bedroom window. It was kind of nice. Um, the uh, the headline is Wealthy Men by Cav's Island. It is rumored that country club and golf course will be located there. That, by the way, I don't think turned out to be the case. But here we go. Cavs Island, familiar to the followers of the water and to the old Greenwich residents, has been sold, according to a rumor, to a syndicate of wealthy Greenwich men for the neat sum of $100,000. Again, my friends, this is in um, January 1916. The purchasers of the island pur purpose or propose to establish a country club there and will probably lay out a golf course of nine holes. To carry this project to completion will undoubtedly be an expensive operation as the island is in a natural state, being thickly wooded in places and also having a considerable area of rough ground. To those not familiar with Cavs Island, it may be stated that it is located between Belhaven and Byram Shore and is separated from the mainland by a very narrow strip of water, which is about 100 yards in width. The island consists of 27 acres of land and is 
very excellent, uh, an excellent bathing facility due to its sandy beach. About 35 years ago, the island was owned by George Luke, a most hospitable gentleman who used to invite his friends there and entertain them handsomely. He had a yacht and a number of boats which were always set to, uh, for the service of his friends. Later, Mr. Luke mortgaged the property to the Mercantile National Bank, and when financial difficulties overtook him, the institution foreclosed on the property. It has been on the market for several years. Herman A. Sherman, who negotiated the recent sale, acted as agent for Emil Klein, E.R. Stenitius, sorry, William Skinner and Garish H. Milliken, liquidating committee of the Mercantile National Bank. The purchasers are John D. Barrett, William H. Childs, William T. Graham, A.G. Hannon, H.W. Hannon, Charles Mallory, Henry R. Mallory, Robert Mallory, Edgar L. Marston, Hunter R. Marston, E.J. Marston, J.F. Marston, Jeremiah Milbank, and Dock Commissioner R.A.C. Smith. You have been listening to the 18th of March 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. It is hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. I'm really glad that you could join us today, and I thank you for doing so. Remember, there's no place like this one. Welcome you to enjoy the many blessings that this community offers, and as I like to say, you are very much a part of our history. Um, This podcast uh, show is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, L.A., of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews, use wealth management and listeners like you everywhere. Remember that you can contact me anytime at Greenwich Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. You can also learn more about the show on Facebook, or you can also go to our blog site, which is Greenwich Town for All Seasons dot blogspot.com. I look forward to seeing you uh, again and sharing more about the history of Greenwich, Connecticut on our next, sh- next show, which will be on March 25th, 2022. Take good care, and I'll see you then. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.